All right, welcome back to Third String Podcast. It is a joy to be podcasting on this Saturday afternoon. I'm here with Pete LeCleed and Ishan Nath, my co-host. Guys, how is your weekend going? It's going fine. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Pete, how about you? Surviving Vegas these days? Yeah, man. Living the dream out here. Living the dream. I'm watching NBA Summer League until the the wee hours out here, which is here in Las Vegas. I'm going to try to get there in the next few days, and it's it's a good good time to be out here. Good time to be out here. A little warmer than, than Austin, Chicago, though, I think. Well, speaking of summer league, Ishan, I know this is uh, the baseball and football podcast, and we have a separate basketball podcast that you host talking all about basketball. But just in like 20 seconds, should I be worried about Trey Young's field goal percentage in the summer league? Uh, I would say absolutely not. Uh, okay. Just to throw some stats at you, so far in summer league, we got Marvin Bagley shooting 33% from the field. Obviously, he's a big man, so you expect the field goal percentage and shot quality to be higher for big. Lonnie Walker, the Spurs, is shooting 29%. Grayson Allen is 6 for 29 from the field. Last year, I remember watching Summer League and being kind of, a, you know, as you know, my Twitter handle uh, expresses my annoyance about the Jimmy Butler trade. Last year, I remember watching Summer League to get a handle on Laurie Markkinen. He shot 29% from the field. I was like, this dude literally is not going to make the NBA. He's like not a basketball player. And uh, now I think Larry Markin is like a potential star after yeah. summer league made me think he was terrible. So I think so. I I've watched every minute of Trey's summer league so far. Um, I would say the stuff that's concerning about him to me is like the stuff that was concerning before summer league. Like sure, can yeah. he break down other guards off the dribble uh, in the NBA? Can he finish over length at the basket? Those are like the things I wasn't sure about before, and I continue to be, 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 be not. Uh, I, like the shooting is whatever. He's getting actually really great looks from three, which I think is really encouraging. He's just missing them. And so once the touch is happens. there, he'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, he might, he might not be fine, but I don't think we've learned from his missing every three. I don't think that's the thing that's going to keep him from living up to his potential i think that like the things that are concerns are still concerns but there are things we knew about before summer league yeah fair enough and uh, well let me defense, see if i can segue it's been good yeah uh let me see if i can segue this uh and talk about baseball a little bit to me the summer league is basically like spring training it can be useful to get some looks at players but overall you're not going to see you're not going to see what you'll see in the regular season so it's it's kind of a fool's errand to be like oh you know trey young shooting 28 percent from three uh, or 28% from the field, we're going to see that in the regular season. Not necessarily. So I think it's a, a lot like baseball. I remember when Shohei Atane was having a rough time in Angel Spring training, I was like, ah, this is why I'm not a Shohei Atane believer. And then uh, I looked like a fool in the regular season when he was just crushing it. And then, of course, his arm broke down, and, and we know how that story has been lately. But I was That's still wrong on Shohei Atane. Yeah. Um, okay, well, on the baseball topic, we have a question from a listener. So let me play this. This is from Josh. He's got a question about the Nats Phillies. So, uh, Pete, I know that this is going to be a question near and dear to your heart and my heart. So uh, here's Josh's question. This is Josh calling from Washington, D.C. I've got a question about unwritten rules in baseball. Here's the setup. In the second inning of a game between the Phillies and the Nationals, with two outs and a runner on third, Adam Eaton of the Nats smoked a liner right back at pitcher Vince Velasquez, which hit him directly on the elbow on his throwing arm. He somehow grabbed the deflected ball and threw it left-handed to get the out at first base and end the inning, erasing the run that had scored from third base on the play. Only problem was that upon looking at the replay, the speedy Adam Eaton actually beat out the throw at first, but the Nationals elected not to challenge, and in doing so, erased a run that scored from third and would have put them up 2-0. 
I read some analysis and there was a general consensus that they didn't challenge out of respect for the injured Velasquez. But the Nationals went on to lose the game by one and continue their horrid June slide into third place in the NL East. Now, they may not have won the game even if they challenged, but they might have. So was this the right call for the Nationals? Thanks for taking my call. All right, so what do you guys think? Did the Nationals do the right thing in not challenging the Vince Velasquez left-handed throw after he was hit by an Adam Eaton liner? Absolutely not. This is ridiculous. Like, when should the outcome of a play be determined by whether or not a guy got hurt? Like, should we just, every time someone sprains an ankle in the NBA, should we just give them two points? Like, (laughs) I don't understand how the fact that he got hit by a line drive has anything to do with, like, whether like the baseball play okay Pete, what about you uh yeah watching it live it was an incredible play um i actually watching it live didn't think it was as close as the replay revealed so i don't really know why davy martinez didn't challenge it he was kind of a he he didn't really have a good answer for it in the press conference i think maybe he was so distracted by the injury um they absolutely should have challenged it um, and it was it's an interesting point uh, listening to Josh say that that they are citing the unwritten rules, possibly not something the Nationals are normally as guilty of as a lot of right. other teams. Um, but that that seems like a bridge too far to not challenge in that situation, especially in the third inning. Yeah. Now, Davey Martinez has not had a great year with challenging. I don't know if he doesn't have a great replay team or if they're just I mean, baseball challenges are seem seem to be almost as hard to win as football challenges these days. Uh, but overall. They have been so unlucky when it comes to these challenges and just the way that the ball has been bouncing the last couple weeks in D.C. Um, I, I think if the Nationals had been playing well, this wouldn't be a discussion, but because they were in the middle of a five-game slide at the time, uh, and that was one of those freak plays that really went against them, I think that's what we're seizing on as one of the many examples of how this team just doesn't have it, which I think is more indicative of how... Davey Martinez is running this organization on the field right now. I think he's a great manager. I think he really gets the players. But the thing that I don't like that he's doing right now is he's kind of, it almost seems to me like he's trying to let players figure it out for themselves and try to break out of their slumps like Bryce Harper. I think he's leaving starters in normally two to three hitters too long, hoping that they can kind of right the ship and buy the bullpen another inning or two because the bullpen is so taxed right now. I'd like to start to see Davey Martinez start forcing a few more changes on the field because after the month of June, it's clear that these guys need some kind of external spark, and that's what they're not getting. So uh, I think unwritten rules be damned. Normally, we bring up the unwritten rules when we talk about things like sportsmanship, accountability between the players, whatever, whatever. I don't think this had anything to do with sportsmanship or any kind of accountability. I think it was Davey Martinez trying to let the game kind of work itself over, and hopefully the Nationals could fix it. And I think he needs to start being a lot more proactive on the field when it comes to that. But you know how much I hate these unwritten rules because they, in 2018, I think they're they're hurting the game a lot more than they're helping police the game like they did for a century and a half. Yeah, you know, I, uh, I'm i a Phillies fan. I know you're a Nationals fan, Pete. So, uh, I, you know, I, I would expect you to say that the Nationals should have challenged. But I would, I would also agree with you, even though I'm a Phillies guy. I mean, and Ishan, I think your point's well taken too. You know, in, in what scenario do the circumstances of the play and whether or not a player is injured dictate whether or not you should challenge the actual outcome of that play. And even when, when I watched it, I did not watch it live like you did, Pete. I just saw the replay and the re- the focus of the replays was Vince Velasquez's amazing athleticism to toss his glove and then throw left-handed because he's a right-handed pitcher. So it was an incredible play. But 
ultimately, it doesn't matter if Adam Eaton beat the throw out. That's just how baseball works. And when I was watching it real time, it actually didn't look, I mean, it looked close, but I thought Eaton was safe. And I was thinking, oh, I did, I'm surprised that call stood because I thought Eaton looked safe. And then come to find out when you watch the replays later on, slow motion, Adam Eaton was safe. So I think the right thing to do in this situation also would have been to challenge the play. I mean, this is, this is of course, a different situation if you're in the top of the ninth inning and you're down 10 runs or even three or four runs, I think you can just sort of let it go and not challenge it. But to do so when you're in such a close game against a division rival and a division rival who actually, as of today, has the division lead as of then was second in the division and you really needed to make up some ground on them and you're in the Washington Nationals position, like you you mentioned, Pete, where you're really scratching and clawing to climb up the ladder and you're facing these these young and energetic Phillies and Braves clubs as you do so, you really need to take advantage of whatever edge you can get. And if that means challenging a play in which Vince Velasquez made a brilliant but not quite good enough play to get Adam Eaton at first, you challenge that and you get the runner at first and you play the game out and and maybe you win. So I think we're all in agreement then that they should have challenged the play. Yeah, for sure. Totally. All right. Well, um, I know, Ishan, you have another off-the-bench segment, so what do you have for us to talk about before we get to the heart of the order? Uh, I just, you know, obviously I cheer for the Cubs, and so I would think this, but I just think the St. Louis Cardinals are embarrassing themselves with this Dexter Fowler situation with uh, John Moziliak. Is that how you say it? Is he the the general manager, the team president, or He's the team president, yeah. Yeah, he's both. Yeah. Uh coming out and questioning Fowler's effort and hustle and being like, you know, it's one thing to give at-bats to a guy who's struggling, but it's another thing to give at-bats to a guy who's not working as hard as the guys in front of him. Um, I just think this is absurd. He clearly, from the comments, had not even talked to Fowler about it. Fowler was, like, away on paternity leave, so he couldn't even respond in the media. Uh, This is, like, a breakdown of a situation. It's apparently Fowler and Mike Matheny don't talk anymore with, like, in my opinion, my favorite guy who's played baseball probably in like the last 15 years. So I, uh, you know, very biased because I love Dexter Fowler and I don't like the Cardinals. But this seems like a situation that's been totally mishandled by St. Louis. And it's just amazing to me that anyone could not get along with Dexter Fowler. He's like, uh, you know, the most lovable guy who's played for the Cubs. And also related story is the breakdown between Fowler and the fans. So when he was in Chicago... Dexter used to interact with fans a lot on Twitter, he and his wife. They would, like, tweet pictures of their kids. They would offer people tickets on Twitter. They would, like, have conversations with fans, and it was, like, really adorable. And uh, apparently they've, like, had to delete their social media accounts because they've been taking a lot of abuse from Cardinals fans, both because Dexter's struggling this season and then also last season he made some, like, really very mild comments about the Trump administration's Muslim ban which his wife is either half or fully Iranian. And so he's basically like, you know, whenever you can't see your family, like his kids couldn't see their grandparents as a result of the policy. She's like, it's always unfortunate when you can't see your family. It's like the mildest sentence ever, just about his own family's experience, not even like some big political stand, like, you know, Colin Kaepernick or something. And he took so much abuse on social media that he's basically not on social media anymore. So this Dexter Fowler Cardinal situation is just a wreck, and it's very upsetting to me. So I, I totally agree that it is a wreck. It is a disaster from start to finish, honestly. You go back, so you guys know that I actually grew up a big Cardinals fan back when we didn't have a baseball team in D.C. My dad's from St. Louis. Uh, so 
watching Dexter Fowler come over, who was just fantastic during those World Series runs. But I think it was pretty clear that Dexter followed the money, and this was never really a good fit in St. Louis. And I think this has been brewing for about a year and a half, looking back on it. He had some teammates calling him out last year, which was a little unlike the Cardinals as well, like like when Mo called him out earlier this week on that uh, podcast. But I, it, it was Who's not Mo? a good fit. Who's Mo? Uh, Mo Zalak. Oh, uh, the, uh, the, Wait, the he's not a teammate. Okay, so the, the teammates were actually calling out his lack of effort last year as well, because keep in mind, the Cardinals paid him, what did they, they give him a contract for? It, five it was like years, a five-year, 80. $80 million contract, and he came over as the most highly recruited guy out of Chicago. It was big, but remember his comments when he was coming out of Chicago that he was worried about going to St. Louis uh, because of the fans, that he actually said he didn't know how he felt about the city of St. Louis, but he was excited about the Cardinals organization. So they both kind of got off on a weird foot. Well, they showed him why. <laughs> well, when you as the player come out already Behave. attacking the fan base before you ever take the field, you're not really setting yourself up for success right there. So I think you just have to remember that Dexter followed the money to St. Louis. He hasn't performed. Mosellac really shouldn't have called him out by name. I agree with that. But this isn't really the first time that's happened. And I, I think the biggest problem in St. Louis St. is Louis Mike Matheny. St. Louis is the first place that's happened. It never happened in Colorado or Chicago. Everyone loved him here. All his teammates. He played. I watched every game Dexter played with the Cubs well, probably for dude, three look years. At, he, look at his numbers on these different teams. He's hitting like 170 that right now. That has nothing now. to do like, with effort. That's not an effort uh, thing. Like, what is the uh, evidence? What is one play in one game where Dexter hasn't given effort? That definitely did not happen in Chicago. Dexter doesn't run to first base when he grounds out. Dexter doesn't hustle in the outfield half the time. Like, dude, I watch like five Cardinals games a week. I absolutely like, Dexter do not think is that's not true. Running. Dexter okay, chases well, the ball in the outfield. What are the What are the stats on his? I mean, the stats on his defense have always been kind of questionable. But like, yeah, I this would not okay, be. So, this 100% would not be happening if Dexter Fowler was white. I couldn't disagree with you more on that, but that's, Matt uh, that's probably not Carpenter had 160 the... for two months this season, and no one said anything about him. Yep. How did Matt Carpenter do the last three years in St. Louis? How has Matt Carpenter done since that slump and he's come back? Dude slump all the time. Dexter Fowler's been slumping for a year and a half. Dexter Fowler's a great dude. I was a huge fan of him in Chicago, but he's hitting 170. He's not running ground outs to first. I mean... If, if you want to play the effort, Kate, that's fine. But you need to play the effort if you're going to be mad that you're getting questioned for your effort. He's leaving St. Louis. Mike Matheny is leaving St. Louis. John Mozeliak was his biggest supporter. If you Wait, look at you think Fowler the last slumped year. for a year and a half? I just looked it up. His OPS was 851 last year. That was his highest in the last five years. He's not slumped for a year and a half. He slumped for 251 plate appearances this season. He was great last season. He's better than any of his seasons in Chicago offensively. Okay, I'm just telling you, the eye test tells me that Dexter Fowler doesn't want to be in St. Louis. You look at his interactions. I with wouldn't the... want to be in St. Louis. It's because you're right. a Cubs fan. <laughs> yeah, and because their fans are uh, like completely classless in the way they've treated Dexter. I mean, Chicago's not really I... a place to throw stones at how they treat players, though, is it? I mean, really? <laughs> maybe. I mean, Dexter was fine when he was here. I don't like, maybe. Jason. Well, how about this? Jason Hayward came to Chicago and has not been within 20% of being an average offensive player since he's been here until this season. This is third season here. He's been really bad the entire time he's here. There's not been one instance of Jason Hayward and the fans having negative interactions that I've been aware of. Okay, so that's... The exact same as the Dexter situation. Except that Dexter had a great season and then a bad half season and 
Hayward had two terrible seasons right when he got here. I mean, Dexter was still hitting 260 last year. Let's not act like he was hitting 330. Like, 260, he was hitting 260. 363 on base percentage, 488 slugging percentage. Batting average is not a useful stat, and his career average is 263. Last year, he hit 264. He was above his career average, and his career OPS was the second highest of his whole career. Like, it was the best offensive season he's had since Colorado when he was hitting at Coors Field. Yeah, I mean, it was also the worst defensive season he's had since 2014 with the Astros. I mean, I, I, Dexter Fowler certainly has not lived up to the the star caliber contract that he is paid to be on in St. Louis. And I think that what, what we're seeing now is the result of a really passionate fan base, because we all know the St. Louis Cardinals have one of the most passionate fan bases in the game. A really passionate fan base seeing someone come over from the division rivals. I mean, one of the most storied rivalries in in the majors. And he comes over from Chicago and he's not performing in the same way that he was in Chicago. And I can, I can, I'm not saying that I would feel the same way, but I can at least see how a passionate fan base would hold that against a player. I'm not saying it's justified, but I think that's what you're seeing in Dexter Fowler's case. And then in Moe's case, the comments that he made about him, I mean, the, the comments were, they were actually fairly, I, I don't know if I would say benign, but they weren't quite as bad as I think they've been played in the media. Um, he said, let me see if I can find the actual quote from MLB.com. Uh, Mo says, it's been a frustrating year for everybody involved. Here's a guy referring to Fowler that wants to go out and play well. I think he would tell you it's hard to do that when you're not playing and not playing on a consistent basis. But I've also had a lot of people come up to me and question his effort and his energy level. Those are things that I can't defend. What I can defend is trying to create opportunities for him, but not if it's at the expense of someone that is out there hustling and playing hard. So the way, the way I read this is not that Mo is saying he's not, uh, he's not trying and his energy level is uh, uh, low. I see Mo is saying that people are questioning his effort energy level and that Mo can't defend those things because Mo Mo can't speak to someone else's effort or energy level. I think Mo can only speak to the results and Mo is acknowledging that these results aren't where that he or Fowler wants them to be and he can't give Fowler more opportunities if Fowler is performing at that really low level when there are other people right behind him on the bench who can do so just as well or better. Um and then he, he tried to clarify these comments later on and basically say, you know, I wasn't trying to single Fowler out. I'm trying to, to signal to the whole club that we all need to be engaged and working. And I know Fowler is working and all of that. So, I mean, I thought most comments were, were mildly critical of Fowler, but not to the degree that they've been, they've been made out to be. What do you guys think about that? If I remember the reporting correctly, uh, yeah, that seems fair on the Mo thing. I mean, I think it was bad, but I agree that it's not like the he's, he's going to fire Mike Matheny. That's the message he's sending. Yeah, he's I think you're right. Mike Matheny, and he's trying to rally the players to do something. But Mike Matheny is the cancer in that locker room, and has been for the last two or three years. That that is the problem. That the the fans turned on Mike Matheny three years ago. He's done. But I just want to go back to the. Sorry, I didn't realize you were still talking. Nope, go for it, man. Oh. I just want to go back to the the like comments. I didn't actually realize. I thought it was like it was reported that Fowler ha- was thinking this. I didn't. I don't think uh, Fowler actually said the thing that like he definitely said the thing you said about like being questioning the fans. But my my recollection was that like it was reported that he was saying that privately, not that he made a public statement to that effect. I don't know if we can Google that quickly. Are you while talking we're talking about, about Mo about or this. Fowler? I'm talking about Fowler when he first signed in St. Louis. I don't know if we can find whether or not, but I'm remembering that correctly. But like, if I remember the reporting correctly, it was that like Fowler had talked to Hayward. They, you know, they're both from Atlanta. They've known each other since they were kids. And like, 
Fowler felt like other black players who had played in St. Louis had like had negative experiences with the fans. That was like definitely what the Cubs bloggers were saying at the time. I'm not sure if that was like well-sourced reporting or not, but that was like the feeling around Fowler's comments. And it seems to me that like St. Louis is going to have to, St. Louis outbidding the other teams by a lot to get Fowler. I don't think he had a similar offer on the table anywhere else. And it seems like the next time they have a black player who's going to talk to Dexter and Jason Hayward, they're going to have to also outbid by a lot. Because this is like a negative experience that I feel like, uh, I think Dexter thinks it's about race. I don't know if it's just me who's saying that, but like, it seems like the conversation in Chicago feels that is kind of like the Cardinals fans are treating Dexter Fowler poorly. And we don't think that would be happening to a white player. And uh, we felt like there were other players saying that about the Cardinals before Dexter went there. And so uh, I'm just saying, it's not only me who's saying that I don't have any, like, uh, I don't actually have the ability to tell you about anyone else who's saying that, but it, it seems like that's not a thing I made up in my head. That seems like part of this conversation. It may be that it's totally incorrect, but I think it's the impression that like Cubs fans have about the situation. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing a quick Google search to try to see if I can find any of these early reports. And there definitely are some articles about pos- possible racism in the St. Louis fan base, but I'm looking at a bleacher report. One of them one. was totally made. One of them was totally made up. To be fair, there was like a report once that uh, Cardinals fans had like directed the N word at Jason Hayward, and it turned out to be like completely spurious and like really irresponsible journalism. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm seeing. Uh, so I see this bleacher report article that's specifically about attacks on Dexter Fowler. This is from February 2017. Um. So let's see. Uh, there are some. It quotes some you know social media comments that certainly are racist um then talks about uh i mean cubs fans do that too to be fair sure yeah i mean matt holiday says he's never seen any of that in seven and a half seasons yankees pitcher cc spathia said he's never had any issues passing through st louis so i don't know i mean i I think we're sort of in speculative territory here i certainly think that a racial element is possible to this but it's also true that that many players regardless of race are criticized for their lack of effort by fan bases. I mean, that's one of the, that's one of the go-to complaints of any fan base, right? When a player is not doing well, you know, bench them. They're not trying. It's clear. They're not hustling, et cetera. So, so, so in that, in that sense, re- it's not, su- not too surprising yeah. to me. I mean, definitely like things happen to anyone. It's, it's like the rate at which they happen that differs. Okay. So he's basically a, there's a shorter, a shorter time span that Dexter Fowler has to perform before he's attacked for it. Uh, no, I just like, uh, I just, think black players are more likely to be called out on their effort okay yeah fair enough well should we move on from this topic go to the heart of the order yeah let's do it totally cool all right so for the heart of the order today i was thinking we're at almost the all-star break tomorrow night on espn is the mlb all-star selection show and what i thought we could talk about briefly on this podcast today is whether or not we will see the or basically what the playoff picture will look like for the mlb by the end of the season and the question I wanted to pitch to you guys is, will the playoff teams that we're seeing right now, if the season ended today, are those the same playoff teams that we would see, that we will see at the end of the season? So right now I have, looking at these standings, the Red Sox, Indians, and Astros winning their respective divisions in the American League. The Braves, I'm sorry, the Phillies, Brewers, and Diamondbacks winning their respective divisions. 
And then the wild card teams in the American League being the Yankees and the Mariners, and the wild card teams in the National League being the Braves and the Cubs. What do you guys think about that? Is that what we'll see in the postseason this year? I'll let Pico first. Thanks to both of you guys for tolerating my somewhat flying off the handle rant, by the <laughs> oh, way. No. Good discussion. <laughs> it was good. <laughs> um, starting with the American League. I am still going to be surprised if the Red Sox can hold this much of a lead over the Yankees and keep the Yankees to the wild card. I I really have a lot of confidence that it's going to be Yankees-Red Sox as the ALEs winner, obviously, and then taking that first wild card spot. That I, I think those two are, are pretty much as close to being guaranteed as you can be halfway through the baseball season. Obviously, with 80 games, a lot can change. I'm pretty confident the Yanks and the Sox. Um, I'm also pretty confident in the Astros based on that starting rotation and their offense. Uh, And I'm also pretty confident in the Indians based on the lack of competition they're having. So in the American League, uh, yeah, I'm I'm pretty, I'm feeling pretty good about who is sitting on top of the American League right now that they've got the qualities that I'm looking for for them to to push through another 80 games. I still am am pretty high on the Mariners, so I still expect them to also be the second wild card. But obviously those wild card spots, we've seen some epic collapses in September that uh, I'm sure... Uh, that wild card spot is is going to fluctuate a little here, but I think the Mariners have the best shot for it. So I'm I'm pretty vanilla on the the American League right now. That I, I think it's it's shaping out kind of how we thought. Any thoughts on the American League before we jump to national? The thing about the American League is that even if you don't think these are the five best teams, uh, their lead is like so big, right? Like the Mariners have a seven and a half game lead, I think, for the second wild card spot, uh, and I think. They're probably the team out of this group that's definitely got the most tenuous hold on, you know, they have an elite record. They're 56 and 33, but their run differential of plus 19 is not elite at all. They have like a crazy record in close games. Uh, so I don't necessarily think the Mariners are, are nearly as good as those other four teams, but like they have a huge lead, so they'll probably make the playoffs. And uh, yeah, I, I think the Red Sox hold on over the Yankees and take the division, which I think is like the only remaining question basically in the American League, which is kind of crazy because we're not even at the All-Star break yet. We have two wildcard teams, but like the American League playoffs look kind of set so, to me. So what do you think is going to help the Red Sox hold that lead over the Yankees? Cause I think that is going to be like it is every year, one of the most interesting races. Um, and the, the Sox over the last two or three weeks have been so good. What is it you think will, will help them hold on to, to stave off the, the Yankees in that devastating offense that the Yanks have right now. Can I jump in here, actually? Yeah. I uh, So I, I also think it's very possible that the Yankees catch the Red Sox in that division, but I think what it will come down to is whether or not the Yankees can make some sort of trade to bolster their starting rotation yeah. because they have Severino, and after Severino, there's a huge drop-off, and then they have you know Sonny Gray pulling up the, the tail end of their rotation, and that's just not a winning rotation. So they have they have one of the most formidable lineups in recent MLB history, as far as the batting side of the table goes, but their pitching is just really weak after you get past Severino and their bullpen strength is okay with Chapman and Batances, but they really need to lock down a better starting rotation. And if they can do that by making some sort of move, there's been talk of DeGrom maybe to the Yankees. If they can do something like that, I think that could be enough to get a a one or two game edge over the Red Sox by the end of the season. But absent that, I keep waiting for the Red Sox to regress. I keep waiting for this to even out, but I just don't think it's going to unless the Yankees can do something to help their starters. Yeah, I was going to say basically roughly the the same thing. Another point I was going to make on this American League discussion is that it's really interesting. I'm looking at the fan graphs, the 2018 year to date standings, and that includes run differential. And the 
American League playoffs te- playoff teams as they stand now and as we're talking about them being at the end of the season with the Red Sox, Yankees, Indians, Astros, and Mariners, that's that's five of only six American League teams that actually have a positive run differential. The only other team that does is the Angels. Um, at a, oh, I'm sorry, there are two more. Angels and Athletics both have a positive run differential, but barely. So 15 for the Angels and eight for the Athletics. So this, I think, just goes to the disparity in the American League. This is why it looks set so early. This is why the Indians have an 11 and a half game lead uh, in their division by the All-Star break, just because there are there's such a disparity between the haves and the have-nots in the American League. And I think that's an interesting dynamic to watch because you see such a, a significant imbalance of power there. And I think that's a little bit different from the National League, where we have some more exciting division races like the, the National League East. But Let's pivot to the National League now. What do you guys think about the National League playoff teams if the season were to end today? Is that the same we'll see by the end of the season? So so starting off with the NL East, I am still really, really impressed with the young guys in Atlanta. And I still think the Braves um, are really the most fun team to watch in the NL East. And I, I think that they will absolutely be in the playoffs. I'm not sure if they'll win the NL East or if they'll sneak in as a wild card, but Zach, I told you about a month and a half ago, I was I was starting to think that I might maybe should look at the futures odds for the Braves, and I'm, I'm getting a little more confident yeah. in looking at those odds. I think you look at Aze uh, Albies, who's leading the NL in extra base hits, Ronald Asuna Jr. with his, what's it, like an 820 OPS or something crazy. Freddie Freeman's having an MVP caliber season. I'm, I'm really... As much as I don't like it as an NL East fan, uh, I'm really high on the, the Braves' talent right now uh, and how far ahead in the rebuild they are. I think because they're so far ahead, they're not necessarily built for all 162 games. So I'm going to be surprised if they can hold on to the NL East in that one spot. But I think they're going to make a push for the wild card for sure. So I like them as a playoff team. Um, I Still watching what the Brewers are doing. The Brewers are pretty solid. I still think the Cubs are the better overall team, especially with Keane going down this week. I think that the Cubs will get the, the NL Central pretty easily. Um, and I think the, the NL West really screwed up in letting the Dodgers hang around so much with the crazy resurgence of Matt Kemp. Uh, that that has been one of my biggest yeah, that's surprises. Been a, that's is been Matt a Kemp. fun storyline. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. So that, that's kind of what I'm feeling, at least across the National League so far. Okay, Ishan, what about you? Uh, I'm going to stick with the three division winners at the beginning of the season, which is the Nats, the Cubs, and the Diamondbacks. Uh, obviously, the Nats are underperforming a lot. I just still think that their talent level is overwhelming and will like come through in the end. They're five games behind the Braves and Phillies right now. Cubs were five and a half behind the Brewers at the All-Star break last year, and they ended up winning the division by, I don't know, like five, six games. Um I still feel really good about the Cubs. Their run differential is almost twice as good as the Brewers. Um, Chris Bryant spent almost a month cumulatively on the disabled list in the first half, and uh, I think the Cubs are going to end up taking that division. Um, the Dodgers and Diamondbacks is, I think, in the wild card is where I'm kind of un- un- unsure. Obviously, the Dodgers, after starting 16 and 26, they're what? Uh, just doing some quick math. 30 one and 14 since then um so clearly they're trending the right way and they do have the second best run differential in the nl behind the cubs uh so there's a lot pointing towards the dodgers winning you know kershaw's back he spent some time on the disabled list i don't know i just kind of feel like the diamondbacks are gonna win that division i kind of still feel like the dodgers contributions they get from sort of these out of nowhere players like max muncie and in past years you know like chris taylor 
feel like that well is going to dry up eventually and the Dodgers will end up a wildcard team. And then Braves or Phillies for the second wildcard. Oh, actually, I think the Brewers take the second wildcard. Yeah, that's where I'm leaning as well. So, yeah, I think the Nats come back and win that division and the Braves and Phillies like narrowly have to wait till next year. And then Brewers and Dodgers in the wildcard game. Winner faces the Cubs. Okay, so I have have a slightly different take. I think that the Diamondbacks will not win the division, and I think they'll actually miss out on a wild card as well. So what what I see is the Dodgers eventually overtaking the Diamondbacks, and I think it'll be in the next couple weeks here. I think maybe shortly after the All-Star break, you'll see the Dodgers take hold of that division and not give it up, and the Diamondbacks will will slide eventually into irrelevance. I think you'll see the Cubs catch the Brewers. Again, I'm looking at the same run differential stat that you are, Ishan. I think the Cubs have just been a better team, and they've just been sort of unlucky so far this season, but I think they will catch the Brewers and I think they'll win the division. And then in the National League East, I am not as bullish on the Nationals' chances to win. I just don't see any regression from the Braves. They also have a really good run differential. It's almost three times what the Nationals have right now, but the Nationals have a better run differential than the Phillies. I think what we'll see is the Nationals getting the wild card out of the NL East with the Braves winning the division. And I think that second wild card goes to the Brewers and the Diamondbacks slide back. Now, the one thing I'll say though, is that if the Diamondbacks are able to make a trade for Machado, that could be something to watch because that could make the Diamondbacks in play um, for maybe not for the division title, but at least for a wild card. And you could see maybe the the Brewers losing out on a wild card, um, maybe the Nats, but I think the Braves will still win that division. So I'm going Braves, Cubs, Dodgers for my division winners. And as of now, Nats and Brewers for the wild card. What do you guys think about that? I could see literally, I would say out of these, how many teams are we talking about? Seven teams. And I would even throw the Cardinals in there. Yeah. Uh, I would say out of those eight teams, like basically nothing would surprise me. I would be kind of surprised if the Rockies or Giants, who are only three and a half games out right now, stay in the race long run just because their run differentials are minus 29 and minus 31. And I just don't feel like they have the talent to stay with these teams that are ahead of them. Right. Um, so I'd be a little surprised if one of them makes the playoffs. But other than that, out of these eight teams, like I think it would actually really shock me still if the Cubs missed the playoffs. But uh, any of the other eight missing or making the playoffs, I think would not be very, I would not consider that to be an upset. Yeah, and I think that's why the National League is just more exciting this year. I think the American League teams will be really exciting to watch in the postseason because it'll be clashes of titans. But when you're watching divisional play, apart from Red Sox, Yankees, maybe Astros, Mariners, you know, you're watching the Indians go play the Twins. There's nothing compelling about that, but there's a lot of exciting stuff whenever the Cubs go to Milwaukee or the Braves go to Washington or the Dodgers go to Phoenix. You know, there's there's much more compelling baseball there. And I think it's just because there's there's a better distribution of power in the National League. You guys agree? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I agree, but one thing I'd like to note here is that the two wild cards, I think, has made the American League way more fun down the stretch, just in the sense that winning the division is a huge reward right now. And, you know, if we definitely are going to have one great division race in the East, and if the Mariners miraculously manage to keep up this pace of, like, crazy ahistoric luck in close games yeah. then we might have two great division races and we'll actually care about them down the stretch it won't just be like oh like you know guys are resting their starters on the last day of the season when the wild card versus division race is still up in the air like used to happen right well and the exciting thing too about the two wild card format is the is that one game play in right and so 
in this case, you have the Mariners who have been incredibly lucky through close games, and they have the kind of lineup that matches up very well. And, you know, the kind of pitcher in James Paxton who matches up very well with a lineup like Red so- the Red Sox's lineup or the Yankees lineup in a one-game playoff. So it's very conceivable that we find ourselves in a future where the Red Sox or the Yankees are paired up against the Mariners in a one-game play-in, and the Mariners win that game, and there go the Yankees and the Red Sox in, in a one-game postseason. So that that alone is is compelling, I think, to compelling enough to make us pay attention to these division races. Let me just hit you guys with a quick stat. I know we're hating on the Mariners, and I'm just going to keep up with that theme. Baseball Reference has a luck game statistic, which is they take the team's win-loss record and then the expected win-loss record. It's called the Pythagorean win-loss record based on their run differential. And the range for all the other teams in baseball is minus six to plus four. So out of the playoff teams, the unluckiest playoff contenders, the unluckiest teams have been the Astros, Dodgers, and Cubs at minus five, minus four, and minus four. And then the luckiest teams other than the Mariners have been the Phillies, Brewers, Giants, and Rockies, who are all plus three and plus four in this luck stat. The Mariners are plus nine. They're nine games better than their expected record. It's I haven't looked at the historical stats for this stat or anything, but I can't imagine anyone has, I don't know. It's, it's like, it's out of control. They're like a dot far to the right of the rest of the distribution. So yeah. maybe the, maybe we're actually going to have a great race for the second wild card spot because they're th- going to come down to earth. It, it, I think we lot. might. It's very possible. Um, but I mean, even if they do, they don't have anyone, they don't have anyone nipping at their heels. I mean, I'm looking at, so baseball reference have, baseball reference has the luck standings that you just pointed out. I look at the baseball prospectus third order winning percentage a lot, and it's designed to do the same thing, just strip out the luck factors. And so it has um, Seattle going from its current 56 wins down to like 48 wins. So it's it's in the you know eight to nine win range that you just talked about, Ishan. But um, when you look at the Oakland, o- Oakland Athletics for the same thing, um, they're still lagging behind the Seattle Mariners and the Twins are even below 500. So there's no real race for the the uh, the third or the second wildcard spot maybe maybe from the rays i don't know the the rays have a run differential of zero so they're um they're not better than the mariners but i think it could be an interesting thing to watch down the stretch i just i'm enjoying the mariners uh narrative here and i went to a mariners game when i was in seattle last weekend it was a lot of fun i'm i'm kind of all aboard the mariners hype train for this season because i i like watching an unexpected team emerge in this titan dominated american league that we have now did you ever buy that robinson canoe jersey i wanted you to buy while you're out there last week <laughs> you know i didn't i didn't even buy a mariner's hat they, they were doing this like turn ahead the clock promotion when i was there and they gave out free caps to the first five thousand fans or so but i was not one of those so there were all these free caps and i didn't even get a free cap so i uh i thought about buying some merch uh i did not really think about the robinson canoe shirt Kate, i know you wanted me to do that but <laughs> I, I think maybe uh like uh, i would have gotten a d gordon jersey i'm a, I'm a d gordon fan edwin diaz um, man. he's a lot of fun to watch oh yeah for sure for sure there uh it was it was a fun team to watch and we had pretty good seats uh we splurged on the tickets because we were celebrating our fifth anniversary sally and i so it was a lot of fun Congratulations. We had, thanks That's thanks awesome. so much it was a, it was a blast of a trip we could, i can tell you all about it later on but the game was really fun to watch and uh you know good seats so we were up pretty close to the action definitely in foul ball territory if any if any of them hit straight back most of them just went over our heads because we were that close so it was a lot of fun though and I'm, I'm enjoying the the mariners narrative this season so i guess you could say i'm i'm on board for them to lock up a wild card and then win that play in so they can face another team in the playoffs but should we move on to uh garbage time guys Let's do it. Yeah. 
we are we're running out of time here. I, I wanted to talk um, NFL a little bit, but I'm going to suggest we table that for next week. Um, and the the one other thing I wanted to mention is this guy named William Williams Astudio, not Williams Williams Astudio. He is a catcher in the Twins organization. Was recently called up to the Twins, and he's really exciting because he's basically the anti true three true outcomes king. So the three true outcomes, of course, in baseball refers to the fact that increasingly in modern baseball, the three true outcomes that you have from an at bat are a home run a strikeout or a walk. And the rates of each of those three things have been rising across the game uh, for uh, at least a decade. But Williams has to do is a giant slap in the face of that trend. And he's pretty, he's pretty funny because he doesn't strike out, he doesn't walk, and he doesn't hit home runs. He basically just is good at getting on base or uh, making contact and not getting on base. So um, I pulled up some stats here. Across the entire league this year in 2018, across the majors, there have been uh, 8,576 walks, 22,345 strikeouts, and 3,003 home runs. Adding up the home runs, strikeouts, and walks, 33.8% of the time that a player has gone to the plate, they have hit into one of those three true outcomes. They've struck out, they've walked, or they've hit a home run. So 33.8% of the time. It's a pretty high number, right? Williams Astadio throughout his entire minor league career, and it's not a short career. He's he's had 2,342 plate appearances, but a combined total of 180 home run strikeouts and walks. So he's had 80 walks, 76 strikeouts, and 24 home runs in his entire minor league career for a career percentage, three true outcome percentage of 7.7%. So there's a massive disparity between the type of hitting that he's doing and the type of hitting that we're seeing league-wide in Major League Baseball. And it's pretty hilarious. And if you look at uh, Alcidio's numbers since he's come up, he's actually done uh, none of those things at all. He's not walked yet. He has not struck out yet. And he has not hit a home run yet. So uh, here's to Williams Alcidio changing the way that we watch baseball players hit the ball because he's not doing what the rest of the guys in the league are doing right now. It's pretty pretty funny. Have you guys seen this at all? Yeah, I, I've seen a little, and you're right. It's it's just a, a different type of baseball, which is a lot of fun to watch. I don't think, unfortunately, that's how the even the minors are necessarily playing the game right now. Um, I, I think you're right that the trend is going to keep going up, but it's it's fun to see a guy like this because a guy like this is really going to start confusing game plans, and we talk about the shift, and we talk about all these different defensive schemes to try to beat the hitter, uh, and, a, and a guy like this is exactly the formula you need to start throwing wrenches into that system again. I mean, you look at all these dominant players over the years, and for the most part, they figured out how to get them out two out of three times up every time, right? And and this this could be a lot of fun for the game. The, the Twins need a, a feel-good story this year as well. They've been a big disappointment, especially with guys like Lance Lynn. So I'm, I'm rooting for the Twins to have a feel-good story. I saw that crazy triple he hit. It was at Wrigley Field. Oh, nice. Okay. Uh, he looks fun. Yeah, I think it'll be he'll be a fun player to watch. It'll be interesting to see if he can maintain this this torrid pace of not hitting home runs, walking or striking out. But anyway, just a, a fun tidbit to watch. That's what I have for garbage time. Do you guys have anything else? I would I would like to give a quick tip of the cap to Jim Ruggleman, who is a guy who I have had a love hate relationship with for a long time. I remember watching him manage the Cubs way back when on WGN. Um, I obviously followed him when he was the manager in Washington, and then when he quit midseason when they wouldn't uh, up his contract, that obviously he wasn't getting along with ownership, and I kind of thought his career might be over based on just how it was perceived that he walked away from a team midseason who was really performing. 
But since he took over the Reds after they fired Brian Price when they were 3-15, and 15, uh, since he's taken over, the Reds have won 16 of 22 games. And while they're not going to make the wild card this year, I don't think. Um, I, I think it is nice for that Reds organization to finally have something to cheer for. I mean, you watch Joey Votto, who is so frustrated in Cincinnati, and you watch a pretty proud team who is pretty competitive uh, in the early 2010s and the late 2000s. Um, I'm really impressed with what Jim Riggleman has done. I don't really know what he's done to fix it, but overall, uh, I'm glad that they're not the laughing stock of the majors. Like I, I think you could argue maybe the Royals are this year and some of these other teams who are not trying to tank, but tanking ever so much. So uh, hats off to, to Jim Riggleman out there. All right. Agreed. Yeah, I have nothing to add, but he's doing a good job. So Ishan, you've got nothing. Pete, nothing else. Nope. Should we move on to the shootout? All right. So first question here. Uh, Pete, near and dear to your heart as a Nationals guy. Will Bryce Harper, currently with 1.5 war, finish with more war than the outfielder from the Philadelphia Phillies, Odubel Herrera, who has 1.6? Normally, this wouldn't be a question at all. There'd be no contest that Bryce Harper would finish with more than Herrera. But so far, he's on track to finish with less. Do you think this will keep up, Pete? No, I think he'll he'll pick it up a little just because conventional wisdom tells me he has to break out of this slump. I don't know what the heck he's going to do to break out of this slump, but... Um, I'm going with my heart about 99% and my brain 1%. I'm going to say, yeah, he'll he'll finish higher. Okay, he better. I mean, for the sake of his contract next year. it's. I heard Buster Olney talking with Carl Ravish earlier today about the possibility of a one-year contract for uh, Harper, wherever he goes next. You know, maybe play for a one-year $25 or $30 million deal. See if he can play himself into a better position for negotiations for the next deal. It's just, just watching what free agency has been this year. I mean, this was supposed to be such a fun free agency year and so many guys playing for contracts. And we're, we're just not seeing the production out of some of these guys. And if you're if you're a GM and you're looking at, heck, what the Phillies are doing uh, with how much they've they've really reverted to sabermetrics. And I, I think if you are a big-time free agent, this has been a weird year for you to watch. So I, I thought this would be Bryce Harper's best year of his career. And obviously, it hasn't. I don't know if maybe he's hurt. I don't know if the pressure's getting to him. I, I don't know what it is, but yeah, it's it's been really, really interesting. Uh, if you can take the emotion of being a Nationals fan out of it, just what is going on in that Nationals organization from top to bottom, really. Okay, Ishan, what about you? Will Bryce Harper finish with more war than Adubo Herrera? Yeah, definitely. Also, I just want to point out that uh, he's been bad, but also, he, you know, his on-base percentage is still 364. His OPS is still 834. Yes. Like, He's been bad for Bryce Harper, but he's still been like a well above average baseball player. Well, yeah, and this is why this is why on base percentage is a much better indicator of performance than batting average because his batting average, I think, as of today, is two twelve or something like that. But the reason that his on base percentage is so high and the reason he's still providing value to his club is because he walks all the time. Yeah, he walks a ton. He just can't figure out how to hit around the shift anymore. Right, right. Well, Did, have we looked at any of like the luck stats for Bryce Harper? Like, what's his xobp? Like, expected on base percentage based on his batted ball. You know what I'm talking yes, about? Yes, yeah. So, or, like his his uh, BABIP, his uh, batting average of balls in play. Um, I just found that his BABIP is 218. Yeah, what? very low. Is yeah. that like is that a typo? That's like his career BABIP is 314, and this year it's 218. So I don't know if he's been hitting the ball less hard, but it seems like. He'd be having to hit it way less hard yeah, for I mean, 100 so points. This is, this is nitpicky, but the I think BABIP is a problematic statistic because it tells you the batting average of balls that the batter puts in play, but it doesn't tell you how effectively they're putting those in play. So, you know, oftentimes a low BABIP is correlated with a, with, you know, quote, unquote, bad luck. 
Um, but it's not always the case. It could be the case that, you know, the person's just hitting more soft and moderate, uh, making more soft and moderate contact rather than hitting the ball hard. So we'd have to dig into the... Okay, so here's where here's where that's... This does take that into account. Here's uh, expected weighted on base percentage, which takes into account your hit probability based on how hard you hit the ball and the launch angle at which you hit it. And in that, Bryce Harper's at 396, which is slightly ahead of Manny Machado and Paul Goldschmidt and just behind Aaron Judge and uh, Matt Kemp. So that I found that on Baseball Savant, which is... Yep, that's, uh, that's the place really to get that website. data, so that's good. Um, the, the other thing I'll say on that is I think we should talk another at another time about how uh, the shift affects players like Bryce Harper, because there's been a lot of conversation about that, and I think... You know, Bryce Harper is hitting these balls almost as hard as Judge, like you just said, Ishan, but he's hitting them in many instances right into the shift because he's a left-handed hitter and defensive uh, defensive alignments play to left-handed hitters that way. So I think that's another thing that he's he's doing. He can't figure out how to hit against the shift effectively. Although I'm going to push back on that a little. A good way to control that for that is to compare him to another player who gets shifted every time, which is Kyle Schwarber. So Schwarber and Harper both have an expected batting average of 255 based on their uh, quality of contact. But Schwarber's hitting 250 and Harper's hitting 211. Yeah, so you're just saying that Harper's been that less, that much less lucky. Uh, yeah, I'm just saying that like Schwarber gets shifted every time too, and like that doesn't explain. He's still got a batting average close to his expected batting average, so there must be something going on for Harper in addition to the shift. Yeah, I mean, I wonder, I wonder how the uh, how the spray charts look. Is is Schwarber going oppo more often than Harper is? I that's a great point. Uh, I don't know how often Harper is going oppo, but Schwarber is not going oppo very often. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I'm looking at the uh, the barrel percentage here too, and um, so the barrel is basically a term describing how well the ball is hit in terms of where the ball makes contact on the bat. And a barrel is good because barrels are highly correlated with hits. And this year is Bryce Harper's higher highest year ever in terms of barrel percentage. Fourteen percent of his hits are barrels. So yeah, again, I think a lot of the peripherals. Um, I'm in agreement with you, Ishan. A lot of the peripherals are suggesting that he should have higher stats than he does. And I think it's just a matter of time before it turns around to, to a little bit. He's obviously not going to hit 300 the rest of the year. Um, he's not even really been a 300 hitter. He's been a high 200s hitter with um, really high slugging. So I think we'll see a reversion to that eventually. And I think he'll definitely finish with a higher war than Odubel Herrera. Okay, guys, final question in the shootout. Completely ignorant on soccer issues. Uh, I am. You guys probably aren't as ignorant as I am but who do you think is going to win the world cup we haven't talked world cup at all on this podcast and I don't intend to start now but who do you think will win we have uh four teams well I guess technically six teams left right um or five we have uh Belgium France uh England and then Russia and Croatia who are playing as we podcast now so of those five teams who do you guys think is the eventual winner of the world cup I'm going to root for Belgium just because they're the, the smallest country and the least world power. I think it would be kind of fun for Russia, since it's in Russia, if they could pull it off. And they've been surprisingly good this year. But um, I'm going to take Belgium just because I think they have the worst odds but are the most fun to watch. Okay. Ishan, what about you? I am going to go with France. And it's for a deeply knowledgeable soccer reason, which is that uh, Emmanuel Macron is kind of one of our only remaining world leaders who believes both in markets and also like 
you know, uh, inclusive society, uh, inclusive, and he's kind of, you know, like, inclusive open society, but also, like, markets and trade and kind of all the stuff I like. I'm a big Emmanuel Macron guy. And, well, wouldn't, uh, you put, uh, wouldn't you put Justin Trudeau in that category as well? Oh, yeah, is Canada? Canada's not left. No, no, they're not in it, but I'm saying, you know, <laughs> isn't he one of the world, world leaders who's uh, like Macron in that? Yeah, that's fair. Uh, okay. I don't know. I kind of view Macron as, like, a little bit more committed to, like, market-oriented reforms and, like, removing some of the, you know, barriers to firms in France and, like, reforming their labor markets and stuff. Uh, but this is, like, getting too far in that direction. And also, Canada, uh, do they even make the World Cup? Uh, not uh, seeing I, them. I don't have an answer to that. Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> I have no anyway, idea. Anyway, <laughs> I like the president of France, and therefore I think France is going to win the World Cup. <laughs> I, I defer to the professional economists in our midst on all questions about Macron's market-oriented policies. Um, but I will select Croatia, who has not even made it officially to the semifinals now. They're playing, as I mentioned, Russia right now in a quarterfinal match. They were down 1-0 to zero at the half. They have now come back and tied it. So it's 1-1, one one, 69 minutes in. I'm pulling for Croatia to upset the hosts, Russia, and then go on to win the title. It's, I, I have no idea what the soccer, uh, the soccer resume of Croatia is. I have no idea what players are on the team but i'm just gonna i'm just gonna call it right now croatia is going all the way world cup 2018 i mean based on my criteria we like you have to root against putin right plus don't they like cheat right, at sports exactly. a lot i don't even no, really I mean, know I, the story but i i love the idea of croatia upsetting the host and i love the fact that that host would be russia and they would upset russia and then go on to win in the semis and then the finals so yeah i think that has the if, if we're going political narratives, Ishan, I think Croatia has to be my selection. You know, the Cubs are down five to nothing right now, and you might have just convinced me to change the channel to soccer. <laughs> All right, there you go. Watch Croatia. Okay, anything else, guys, for third string? No, that's it for this week for me. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us to our listeners. If you want to submit a question like Josh did, you can download Anchor, find us on Anchor and send us that. You can also find us on Twitter and submit your question that way at Third String Pod. Or I'm at Zach Crippen. Pete is at Pete underscore Laclede and Ishan is at Shoulda Kept JB. And if you like hearing Ishan talk, uh, as most of us do, you have to also find the new podcast, Takes of the Game. It's hosted by Taylor Young and Ishan Nath most of the time. And Ishan is uh, on there to talk all things basketball, a sport about which he's very knowledgeable, probably the most knowledgeable person uh, I know along with Taylor. So those guys really know their basketball stuff. Go ahead, find Takes of the Game, listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Just don't listen to it instead of this one. Stay here with us. All right, that's it for Thursday Podcast. Have a great week.